Good morning, New Life Church family. It's uh, just great to have you here. It just warms my heart to be with others and, and just to hear your voices. It's beautiful. And for those of you online, look forward to the day when you're comfortable and able to be here in person as well. Um, warm in here, but it's cold outside. And my car started this morning for the first time in weeks. Uh, oh, that was such a good feeling when that started, thanks to a guy in our church. So when I say New Life Church family, that's not just a word we throw around willy-nilly, like we really are a family. That's what we're called to be. And so my car started because Sam, I think Sam might even be up there, Sam's a mechanic in our church who just gave of his time on Saturday to help fix my car so it started. So thank you, Sam, what a, what a blessing that was. Um, and it is good to be a part of a family, to not be alone. And as a family, we are called to, uh, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to celebrate with one another when there's cause for celebration. We're called to bear one another's burdens when there's burdens to bear and there's burdens to bear. We're called to mourn with those who mourn when they experience loss. And in a church our size, often we're doing all of those things in the same week at the same time. And so this is an opportunity, beginning of the message, where sometimes I'll just kind of share some, some family highlights, some news for us to be aware of. Um, and so I just, we're celebrating with the McDonald family, Will and Ben Dreen, here on Christmas Day, a Christmas Day baby. They welcome their first child, a girl, Laheva Madeline, into the world. So uh, congratulations to Ben Dreen and Will. Laheva means fiery flame in, in Hebrew, I discovered. And if you look at the mother, you'll, you'll know why. Okay, and uh, so that's super exciting. Congratulations to Josh and uh, Bethany Peters. They had their first child, a baby boy, Matthew. I think Matthew Levi Peters, born a number of weeks ago. Super excited for them, for uh, Eric and Heather Basso, as they welcomed a few weeks ago, little Theo into the world. I think that's their third son. Some people have boys and some people don't, right? But I, I'm told it all evens out across the board somehow. I mean, God's great plan. And so congratulations to the Basso family. And so when you see any of them, um, just offer your congratulations as well. Hey, we're celebrating with uh, Katie Youngstrat. Katie uh, here, I don't has she already flown? Okay, she's about to fly, I think, from Calgary to Hawaii. She has heard the call of God to go to Hawaii for ministry. <laughs> the things we do for Jesus, right? Isn't it amazing? Are any of you hearing that call at this moment? Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing, God. Hamiota, not Hawaii. Hamiota? Are you sure you said Hamiota? Anyway, but it's a, it's a huge for uh, Katie's a young adult in our church. And it's a big step of faith to leave home, to go somewhere far away, to continue to grow as a disciple of Jesus, to follow God's call. So super excited for Katie. Be praying for her as uh, she follows God's call there, Hawaii, and then maybe in other parts of the world, as she's at the YWAM Discipleship Training School. Um, also, I think we should be praying, uh, and hopefully we have been for a while now, for Paul, Allison, Emmer, and their family. I believe that Paul is flying to Mexico here on the 14th of this month, so this week, for, for three or more weeks of cancer treatment. They're trying to throw everything they can at this, uh, at this cancer, and so he's headed there for a few weeks to take some treatment, and so just be mindful of that in your prayers. Allison and the eight kids, I believe, will be home here for those weeks. They could maybe use uh, Beyond Prayer, maybe other, other tangible ways of support and help. So let's be remembering the, the Emmer family and helping bear their burdens as well. All right, well, we are nine days into 2022. Anyone still tracking with your resolutions? Anyone? Or have you given up? Some of you, you're too old, you're too wise to be making resolutions anymore, right? You just know that that doesn't always often work out all that well. Maybe some of you, you're still tracking. I, I don't do the whole resolution thing as much anymore, but a few days ago, we were sitting around the table as a family and talking about this, and, and I said that my goal is by the end of the year is to see my abs, because I've never seen them. I've been told that they're there, but I've never seen proof. And so, like, I, and, and so I said, my goal at the end of the year is to see my abs and bread of my daughter she just sighs and goes, Dad, you say that every year. <laughs> just, a, just, a, just a statement of disgust. And then my youngest daughter, Pippa, she shakes her head. She's like, never going to happen. So that's the family I got to live with. Yeah, it's not going to happen with that level of encouragement and support. 
Anyway, so we'll see how, how that goes. Uh, but, you know, like with the whole New Year's thing, like it's a time where we, we look forward and we go, what is it that we would like to change in our lives? The things that we need or want to change. We all have those things that we need or want to change in our lives. And normally this time of year, we, we think about that and we set some goals. We resolve to change in this way, right? And so we often focus on that this time of year, the things we need to change. And, and I think that there's a bit of a mindset there that success equals progress. Success equals change. And, and very often that's true, but I wonder if sometimes the most important thing that you can do is to not change. To be unmoved. I wonder if sometimes success actually means staying right where you are. Being no different at the end of the year than you were right now in certain ways. Staying put. I think this is what Paul is getting at in those words that Daniel read a few moments ago from Ephesians. We often call the, the, the words uh, that, uh, are the, that give us the armor of God. And let me just read those first few verses from Ephesians 6 again. Where Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Okay, be strong. All right, what does it mean to be strong? He's going to tell us what that looks like to be strong. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the forces of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know, like there, there are forces that are coming against you in this world. And, and, and maybe you're very aware of that right now, or maybe you're not, but that's the reality. Paul, it was then, and that's the reality today. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, and then he gives us this list of metaphorical pieces of armor we are to wear in order to stand firm. But he says it three times there in a row. Be strong by standing your ground, standing firm after you've done everything else. When 2022 is over, may you be standing in some ways in the very same place you were standing at the beginning of the year. So he's saying, Christians, don't move. Stand firm. And you know, sometimes that's the hardest thing to do. Sometimes change is hard, but sometimes the hardest thing to do is to remain unchanged in ways we ought not to change, to stand firm. Because, you know, we're, we're living, all of us in this world, we're living in a strong current. You know, we're kind of a prevailing current that would want to take us somewhere other than where we are now. You can picture a river with a current, right? If you're just sitting in that inner tube, it doesn't take any work just to, just to move with the current, to be moved, to change. But it takes a lot of work and effort to actually stay where you are, to stay put. Sometimes that's the hardest thing. Or, or like wind from a prevailing direction. Now, like some of you know if you've listened to sermons recently that I've kind of taken up the hobbit of coining, coin collecting during COVID. It, it, it's, it's a strange thing. I'm totally embarrassed about it, okay? But I've, I've, you know, the crocheters are happy. I've given them a break. I'm stop, stopping to harp on the crocheters. I'm kind of into, into coins now. So put up a picture of this coin. So I don't know. When I was a kid, maybe you've seen this coin. When I was a kid, every Christmas, my grandparents would gift me a coin that looked like that. Now, I haven't seen them in years until recently when I started collecting them again. But have you ever seen that coin? Right? So it, it's, got, it's, it's, the voyage, it's got voyagers, and on there, there's this little island, and there's these trees. And I was a kid from the prairies, from Medicine Hat, so I didn't see trees very often. And when I did see trees, the trees didn't look like those trees. What kind of trees are those? And then, when I grew up, I moved to Blind River, Ontario, which is right on the shore of Lake Huron. And then I saw those trees, right? So here's another picture of the sort of tree that you'll see along the shore of Lake Huron. These trees that grow right on the water's edge where there's this prevailing wind almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week, coming from the same direction, blowing on these trees as they grow. And so as they grow on the water's edge, they develop that bent. And they all look like that, 
right? Well, there's, there's those trees, right? They, they, they look like that. They've all kind of been bent and moved because they're having this force constantly push, changing them, moving them. And you know what? Like, it's really no different for us. We live in changing times. I mean, t- times have always been changing, right? What do they say? The only constant is change. I think that's a saying. But it feels like change just is happening more and more. And, and, and this isn't one of those sermons where I'm going to rail against change. But as Christians, we, we know there are things that, there are ways in which we are called to remain, to be faithful, to be unchanged. And that can be hard in a, in a world where there's, the ground is shifting it seems at a greater and greater pace. I was just reminded of that recently with, um, and some of you would have maybe heard this kind of in passing in the news, and I didn't know much about it until, until I did a little bit of reading. But um, here, th- this Friday, there was a, a, a new bill in Canada called Bill C-4 that was passed. It came into law on Friday. It's commonly known as the conversion therapy ban. And maybe you've heard a little bit about that. And, you know, here in church, we don't often talk about political and legal issues You know, sometimes they have great bearing on our life. Often they maybe don't. But from time to time, like something arises in our land that is as citizens we need to be aware of so we can engage. And and as followers of Jesus, we just need to know how to be able to think and to respond in faithful ways. And so as I was kind of thinking about this, I thought this is something that as a church we just need to be aware of. We need to think what does it look like as, as followers of Jesus to think and respond to some of these changes. And so I just want to take a couple of minutes just to kind of outline what that looks like. So on December 1st, the Parliament of Canada unanimously passed, without any debate, without any discussion, Bill C-4. It was a bill that had been presented a few times in legislature's past, you know, and there had been debate, and, and it had never actually come into law. But in this last legislative section or, uh, session after the election, December 1st, everyone unanimously voted to pass Bill C-4. The, uh, the, the earlier version of the bill banned any conversion therapy, uh, you know, to, 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 to conversion regarding sexual orientation or gender identity. It banned uh, any of those treatments or practices being offered or given to minors. But this new bill, this new version that was passed, Bill C-4, expanded the wording and expanded that ban to include all adults, all people. And its original intent, I think, I would certainly affirm, and I think really any church, any, any Christian could probably affirm the original intent of that bill, which was to prohibit any kind of coercive or abusive, discredited uh, medical or therapeutic treatment to change someone's sexual orientation. You know, you maybe heard stuff like that, right? Like electric shock or sleep deprivation or, or, or different drugs and, or discredited practices that, that maybe they're still practiced in some places but have been long dis- discredited and discontinued and, 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 and to, 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 you know, I think we could all strongly oppose those sort of practices and support their prohibition. But the reason I'm sharing this with you is because this bill, I think it's something we need to be aware of. It, it, goes, it, it, it has reasons for us if we want to be, I think, if we want to be biblically faithful Christians just to be a little concerned to be aware. And so when the wording of this bill came out, it was, a, it was kind of shocking to many in how, in how broad, we might say overly broad, the language was, the definition of co- conversion therapy. So let me just share it with you. Like it's only a few lines, this, this law here. And so it'll be up on the screen. I don't think those online will actually be seeing it on their screen. But let me read it. It says that conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service designed to A, change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, or B, change a person's gender identity to cisgender. And maybe you've heard that word and you're not familiar. That just means to have a gender identity that aligns with your biological sex. So I'm a man and my body is male, so then I would be considered cisgender, as I'm sure most of you would probably, that would be uh, what you would be considered. Um, So it it, it bans changing a person's uh, treatment that would change a person's gender identity to uh, cisgender. Now that presents some complications because right now there's a growing number of people who have changed their gender identity. I think the the word maybe is transitioned, right? And uh, 
and, and have come to a place where, where they actually feel like maybe they made a mistake or they now desire to detransition. There's a growing number of people that felt like they, for one reason or another, were kind of rushed into this change and now they want to change back to being cisgender. But this bill, it makes it unclear whether it would actually be criminal to support that sort of offer treatment in that sort of direction because it's a bill that just prohibits conversion therapy in, in one direction, uh, not both directions. So, so maybe that's a concern. Change a person's, uh, uh, prohibits practice treatment designed to change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to that person at birth. D, to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. So just for a, just for a moment, imagine a congregant comes to their pastor and says, I'm just, I'm really struggling with these feelings. I, I'm, I'm struggling, like I, I you know, with, with this sort of temptation. I, you know, I, I want to live this way. I want to live in alignment with what I believe to be, you know, God, God's will. Could, could you help me, pastor? Could you pray for me? Imagine that sort of scenario under this current bill, which is now law. It's not clear that any sort of support provided wouldn't be criminal. To repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. To repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity or it prohibits treatment to repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to that person at birth. And it, and it bans this for all people, even consenting adults, okay? There's just an, a complete criminalization of that sort of uh, therapy, whatever the word therapy means. And that's a really big question. What does that word therapy mean? Because it's rather broad here. It seems like it might extend beyond therapeutic settings and could involve religious instruction, pastoral care, or even conversations in the family between parent and child. And so this is of a concern uh, to many, that it's possible under the current wording of this law that giving biblical counsel, like if someone comes and says, Pastor, I'm thinking of changing my, my gender, like what does the Bible have to say about that? Like for me to give what I believe would be biblical counsel in that situation might be under, under the wording of this law, um, against, against the law, be criminal. Um, and it also bans the prohibition of this. So it's also not clear that actually preaching what we consider to be a biblical perspective of God's design in human sexuality and gender, it's not clear that even the teaching and the preaching of that from Genesis 1 or chapter 2 wouldn't be deemed criminal. But I mean, it's hard to know. We won't really know how far the courts are willing to take this, right? The concern is that the wording is overly broad, that this is a possibility, and only time will tell is there are course cases and challenges and precedents that are set. And so we don't really know, but it's something that we need to kind of be aware of, and as a pastor, I need to be thinking about, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? How do we think and we respond to this? The justice minister was asked um, if it would be uh, legal for religious leaders to teach about biblical sexuality, he replied that if it's an open-ended and exploratory conversation, then it is not prohibited for religious leaders, parents, and others, if it's open-ended and exploratory. He says, quote, what is covered by this legislation are practices that attempt to change one's orientation towards a predefined goal. Right? So we'll see. The preamble of the bill, and you know, I'm going to leave this here in a moment, but I just want to make you aware this is what the preamble of the bill uh, uh, says, and it, it almost gives the impression that maybe this law might kind of have people of faith in mind. So the preamble to the bill says, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to the persons who are subjected to it, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on, and, and, and here's the word, and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions, okay? And so that, that's, that, that belief, it calls a myth, right? And, and, and this is very interesting because essentially, if, if, if you read what they're saying, it says that what we would consider to be God's design for sexuality and gender, as clearly shared in the scripture, uh, according to the government of Canada, that is a myth. Now, 
the job of the government isn't to promote, promote any religion. It's really to be irreligious. But it's very interesting that in this, you see that they are actually making what I might consider, we may consider a religious statement in actually calling something a myth. On what grounds, they don't really say. So, okay, that, that's, that's what has just happened here. You know, and I don't know, maybe that's not something you think of much or are concerned about, but as a pastor, it's something I'm thinking about. What does this mean? What does it what does it mean for me, for us? And so I just want to share with you a, a, a letter that is being read on this morning, right now, in biblically faithful churches right across Canada. And I think it just articulates like our, our position and, and our approach well. And, and uh, so let me just share it with you. It says, This past week marked a monumental change in Canadian law and society with the enactment of the federal bill C4, which amends the criminal code. The law's stated purpose is to outlaw conversion therapy. We strongly oppose the coercive and unscientific therapeutic practices that the bill was introduced to address. We appreciate and affirm the desire of parliamentarians to protect the vulnerable. However, we are deeply concerned that the effective reach of the legislation could be extended far beyond its stated purpose. Because its definition of conversion therapy is vague, many are concerned that it could capture parents, pastors, and counselors who teach a biblical understanding of sexuality in a variety of situations. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees our freedoms of religion, conscience, thought, belief, expression, and association and it's our prayer that the law will be applied and clarified as needed in such a way as to honor these charter protections. We recognize that the greatest danger facing the Canadian church is not that we might face criminal prosecution, but, that we might, uh, but rather that we might compromise our teaching of the Word of God or fall silent in our proclamation of the gospel. Along with church leaders of like conviction across Canada, we stand before you today, when I say we, I mean kind of the ministry team, the leadership here of the church, and hopefully we can all stand together. We stand to pledge that we are committed to obeying God's law above all others. With the Lord's help, we will continue to proclaim the whole counsel of God without fear or favor. This includes God's life-giving design for human beings made in His image, male and female, with sexual intimacy reserved for the covenantal union of marriage between a man and a woman. We will continue to issue the call uh, to repent of all kinds of sin and to believe the gospel, knowing that we have all sinned and that salvation through Jesus is the one true hope for the whole world. We will continue to love and serve all people in our community without distinction in Jesus' name. As we press on in the work of ministry, we will trust our Heavenly Father to guard us and to keep us and to work out His greater purposes for our good and for His glory. We continue to pray for our government and to plead with the Lord to have mercy on our needy land. So how will we respond? I like what it said there. It's, um, we are resolved not to compromise. What we believe is the clear word of God. We resolve to be unchanged in a few ways. Unchanged to uphold the teaching of God's word, regardless of how fashionable a criminal might be today or might become in the future. Resolve to continue to uphold the truth, the glorious truth that's shared at the very beginning of the Bible that God has made all human beings in His image. Every single one bears the image of God and is worthy of equal love and respect and dignity. We will uphold that. We will continue to uphold the truth in God's Word that God's design for sexual and, and, and gender is clear that God created us in His image, male and female. And that our identity is not something that we, we have to go and seek out and try to find and uncover or have to create, but is something that we receive from our Creator, from God. Oh man, what a burden it is in our young people. I'm so glad, like I feel for young people these days. Struggling with so much anxiousness and depression, it's rampant. and I, They're just given this burden of figuring out who you are. Your, your job as, 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 as this young person is to, is to kind of discover or to create your identity. What? A huge responsibility, right? I mean, what, it is so liberating just to kind of know who God has made us and called us to be, to receive. 
We will continue to uphold that, all, that we're all sinners, every one of us, equally in need of God's mercy. And that through Jesus Christ, all can receive the mercy and the forgiveness of God and be reconciled to God and be made new and have eternal life. Everyone. It's interesting how, um, as I was reading about this, when this bill was passed on, on December 1st, unanimously, without any debate or discussion, it was fast-tracked, which is very unusual. And, and I kind of wondered why. And, and there, might have certain, there might have been one party more than others there that in the past would have debated and discussed prior versions that didn't at all, that just rushed it through and voted unanimously. And I kind of wondered why that was. And the word that came to my mind was the word expedient, because it felt expedient. I wonder if those people, they knew that any sort of debate or discussion um, or opposition potentially to this would allow other people to, to attach certain labels to them, to make certain accusations. They knew it might be a bad look. It might be a barrier to gaining power in the future. And so the way they went about this was really just a sense that the means justified, the, or the ends justified the means. And so I think that there are people that were just being expedient. What does it mean to be expedient? Well, I googled it. What is expedient? It means a means of attaining an end, a means, especially one that is convenient, but maybe considered improper or immoral. And so I've had these two words rattling around in my brain the last few weeks as I've been thinking about this morning and this message. And the two words are the words expedient and obedient. Rusty, will you in 2022, a New Life Church, will you in 2022, will you be expedient or will you be obedient? And what is, it, what is the difference? Well, I, I thought of these the stories of these two men. We get this contrast in the book of 1 Samuel, the very first two kings of the people of Israel, Saul and David. And we see what this looks like. We find the first king of Israel is Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, the Philistine army is coming against the Israelites. And um, Saul has his army. And they're waiting for Samuel to come. Samuel is the priest, and he would normally make an offering unto God to seek God's favor for success in battle. And so Saul has prom- or Samuel has promised to come as the priest and make that sacrifice. So Saul and the army, they're waiting for him. Uh, in verse 7, they're quaking with fear. Saul waited seven days, the time that had been set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. He began to panic. So he said, okay, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering himself. And just as he had finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. And Saul replied, well, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, I thought... Well, now the Philistines are going to come down against me, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself. And Samuel says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. And the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. You see what Saul Saul was doing is he's trying to be expedient. I need the Lord's favor, but Samuel's not here to make the offering. So I know I'm not a priest, so I'll just do it myself, right? He's trying to be expedient. Like, the, the, the ends justified the means. And, but Samuel comes and he says, you've done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command of God. And, and his, his, his intentions were not wrong, but Samuel said, you have not kept the command of God. And we see this happen Actually, two chapters later in chapter 15, again, now it's the Amalekites that are coming against the people of Israel, and God gives instruction to go out to battle, and he says, um, go out and fight them and destroy all that belongs to them, including cattle and sheep and camels and donkeys. You are not supposed to take it for yourself. You are to, you, in, in battle, you are to uh, eradicate their livestock. And so they went out and Saul fought this battle and they won. It says in verse 9, Saul and the army, they spared the king and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These were they unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. And then Samuel came. 
And Saul said to him, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instruction. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? And what is the lowing of cattle that I hear? Hold on here. I I hear animals. What's going on? Saul said, well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And we totally destroyed the rest. Samuel says, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I, I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back their king. And the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. You know what he's saying, right? Like Saul here is, sorry, Saul is being expedient, right? He's saying, hey, it's a win-win. I know you said that, but like, these are good sheep. We'll keep from ourselves and we'll even, we'll sacrifice. God loves sacrifice. He loves sacrifice. You know, the ends justified the means. But this is how Samuel replies. He says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than to sacrifice. Hear what he's saying? I know your intentions were good. You wanted to give something to God, but but you did not follow the word of God. And what God desires more than sacrifice is obedience to his word. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you as king. And so we see here Saul, he's always trying to be expedient. He takes things into his own hands to do it, to bring it to what he thinks is the right end. But Samuel says, no, now God is looking for a man after his own heart who will actually do what he says. And that man, of course, if you know the story, is David. And Samuel anoints David to be the next king. And then now David is waiting for Saul to die so that he can take the throne to which God has appointed him. And we're going to see how David acts differently in these situations. And so we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And you know, the Bible has some like funny stories. You just have to laugh. And this is one of those. Saul knows that David is going to be king someday and he feels threatened by David and so he's pursuing David to kill him. And in this pursuit, David and some of his men are hiding deep in a cave and Saul comes not knowing that David is in the cave and he comes into the cave to pee. So here he is. He's taking a leak on the wall of... I won't mimic it. He's taking a leak on the wall of the cave in darkness, right? Right? It says, David and his men were were far back in the cave. And the men said, David, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for for you to deal with as you wish. This is that moment, David. Go take what God said is yours. Then David crept up unnoticed behind him in the darkness and he cut off a little bit of the bottom of Saul's robe. He didn't kill him. Afterward, David was conscience stricken For having cut off a corner of his robe, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul, but he let him go. David said, I know God has promised this, but I I can't take things into my own hands. I got to do things God's way. I need to obey God. And you see this happen one more time, chapter 26. And this is, this is not by accident. Twice, Saul, King Saul acts in, in, an, acts in an expedient fashion, taking things into his own hand to bring about the good ends. And twice, Saul acts in an obedient, or David acts in an obedient way. And so here we find again, in chapter 26, verse 7, it says that Saul, David and his commander Abishai, found Saul and his army asleep in the middle of the night, laying there. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Hey, David, now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I can strike him twice and you'll be king as God promised. Let's do it. 
But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him, for who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him. Do you see what he's saying? It would be wrong for me to take things into my own hand, even though God had promised I would be king. That's up to God. My job is to obey. The Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and he will perish. It's up to the Lord, really. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. That's what obedience looks like. He wasn't going to take things into his own hands and use those means to bring about what he thought was God's end to fulfill God's promise. Where Saul was expedient, David was obedient. That doesn't mean David was perfect. You know, if you know the story of David, you know he was a murderer and you know he was an adulterer. He was not a perfect man at all. There was that time when he was on top of his roof of his palace and he saw that beautiful woman, Bathsheba, that he wanted for himself. And Bathsheba's husband was out fighting. And he had the husband sent to the front line where he would die so that he could take Uriah's wife as his own. And so David commits murder. He commits adultery. And how does he respond to that? Well, he responds in an interesting way. We actually have the words of his response in Psalm chapter 51. It says in Psalm 51, verse 3 and 4, now this is David speaking to God. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, I've often read that and I thought, what does it mean when David says, I've only sinned against you, God? That's kind of disrespectful. You killed a guy. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against his wife Bathsheba. What do you mean you only sinned against God? I've kind of been troubled by that, but I've come to understand what David is saying. What he's saying there is, God, your standard is the only one that matters for me. Because in those days, to be king, you could do whatever you want. You wanted a woman, you took a woman. You wanted that house, you took that house. That was your right. You were the king. There was no one there to tell you that you were doing anything wrong. What David is saying here is, even if no one else thinks I've sinned, God, I know that I've sinned against you. I know I've fallen short of your standard, and your standard is the only one that matters to me. You, against you only, have I sinned. Whose standard will we live to meet? We have to ask ourselves this question all the time. Whose standard will we live to meet? Will we be expedient or will we be obedient And you know, the cost of obedience to Christ only continues to grow and will continue to grow in the future, I'm sure. And we will find ourselves facing pressures of all sorts, pressures to conform to the pattern of the world. We'll grow stronger and stronger. It might be the the pressure to kind of silence yourself and not say the things that you believe are true. I mean, it might be the, past, the pressure on a pastor, like just not, not to teach the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God, right? But the stuff that we, that is, it's not quite as presentable, it's not quite as good a look, or might kind of be a little bit more scandalous or cause a stir. We kind of might sweep that under the rug or ne- neglect that, right? It might be that pressure to be silent on things that we ought not to be silent. It might be the pressure for some of you, you know, in in your workplaces to affirm or to participate in in things that um, you need to do to remain in good standing within your workplace. And more and more there will be difficult decisions that we will have to make. In Canada, when that medical assistance in, uh, in dying bill came out a while back, it was, it was promised that doctors, physicians, that it, that it would violate their conscience to administer end of life, right, to take someone's life in that way. Um, they could be exempt from that, but then that was changed, right? So now if you're a doctor, say you're a Christian doctor, and, and it's against your conscience to participate in euthanasia, you are compelled to by law or you lose your job. It's got to be a really difficult place to be. 
And you know, friends, we're going we're gonna to find ourselves in all sorts of ways more and more in these difficult places where there's this pressure to conform to maybe affirm or participate or check boxes, maybe in the workplace to remain a good standing, or maybe pressure, um, the pressure of, of incurring mockery or accusation or damage to our reputation amongst peers or classmates to remain faithful to God's word. But I just really believe the cost of obedience to Christ is it only going to grow. And, and, and you know what? Jesus, the, the great thing about the New Testament is that's what it says. I mean, it, it assumes that we're, that we're going to face this. And Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow after me. Jesus says, there's going to be a, 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 a cost to pay to follow me. To deny yourself doesn't mean to lead a miserable life to not experience pleasure, goodness. No, it, it, it means to surrender your will to the will of God and just commit to, to, to obey God's word and trust him for the rest. Whoever would be my disciple must deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow after me. And that's what David did. He didn't just take matters into his own hands to bring about what he thought were the right ends. No, he trusted in God. in God's way, in God's time, to bring about God's desired end. And so in those words from Ephesians chapter 6 about the, the, the armor of God, it, it, it says that as Christians that we are to put on this helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. I mean, the, what is that? It, it means the reality. To wear the reality, Christian, that your destiny is completely secure in Jesus Christ. That's what the helmet of salvation is. To put on the knowledge that your destiny in Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus, you are reconciled to God. You belong to God. God has given you the gift of eternal life. He promises to work all things for your good. This is yours in Christ. Wear it. Put on the helmet of salvation. Your destiny is secure in Christ. Claim that good news. That good news that births in our hearts love for God. That love for God that causes us, that should cause us at every turn just to walk in alignment with His Word, with His will, and entrust the rest to Him. And so those very first Christians in Acts chapter 5, right? Peter and those other apostles, they're preaching the good news of Jesus. And the authorities don't like it and they call Him in. And they say, you are no longer allowed to talk about Jesus. And Peter says... We need to obey God rather than obey men. We need to obey God. And so they were beaten. They were threatened to not preach in Jesus' name anymore. And then they were released. And at the end of Acts chapter 5, it says that Peter and these apostles, they left rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And they never stopped teaching the good news. They rejoiced that they had been counted worthy. In other words, the cost that they had to pay to be obedient to God for them was a cost they were willing to pay and was their expression of the greatness of their love for God for what He had done for them and what they had in Him. It, paying that price, whatever they were called to pay, was for, for them an opportunity to express their love to their God, to their Savior. So they rejoice that they've been counted worthy and they never stopped doing what God told them to do. So let me bring this to your life. Where do you feel the... You can throw that question up on there. Where do you feel the, the pressure or the pull to change in ways that maybe you ought not to change? In what ways are you experiencing pressure to conform to the pattern of the world? What does that look like in your life? I mean, for some of us, there might be a common thread in our experience. We live in the same world. We live in the same society. But there might be individual ways in which you are experiencing that pressure to conform away from the will of God. And you know, like, I think part of the problem when we always think it's just change and good, progress good, is we think of our lives and time like in this linear line, right? We're, we're, we're here now. This was the past. 
and we were there, but now we're here. And so if we were there and now we're here, obviously, to go here, forward, this, there's only one direction. Progress is that one direction. And I'm not sure that's the best way to really think about our time and our lives. And I think it's better to think of maybe a big circle with God at the center and us somewhere in there. And to the degree that we move towards the center, towards God, that is good change. But to the degree that we move or are pulled away from the center, that's change that we ought not to make, change that we need to resist, we need to stand firm. And so in what ways are you experiencing pressure to conform to the pattern of the world right now? Maybe it's within your family or your workplace, your school, maybe just your own personal life. What does that look like? Will we be expedient or will we be obedient? Like that's the question that's kind of ringing in my ears as I think of of this next year. And only God knows what it holds. But to me, that's the question. Rusty, will you be expedient this year or will you be obedient? New Life Church, will you be expedient or will you be obedient In that situation, what would it look like for you to be obedient to God, to His Word? Are there things that we need to change this year? Absolutely. There's things that need to change in my life. There's things that need to change in this church that we might need to move more towards God and His Word and His will, undoubtedly. But there are, there are many things and important things that ought not to change in your life. Not to change in my life. Not to change in this church. Places in which we are just called by God to stand Firm. To not be moved. To stand firm in some of the ways we've already discussed. But, but that also, I, I, I kind of feel like we're maybe talking about it in too negative a term. It, it's, it's, it's not something that's just ominous or negative. It's, it's also, are we going to stand firm in offering the hope, the one hope for the world to the world, the hope for the world which is found in Jesus Christ. Are we going to stand firm and not shy away from offering this hope that people you know in your workplace, in your family, in your school, in your neighborhood, they need? Because they might appear like they've got it all together, but inside, and, and you know many of them, they're struggling. They're struggling with meaning. They're struggling with hope. And Jesus offers all of that. Jesus is the hope of the world. Will we stand firm in taking this great hope that we have, this light, and bringing it into the dark places around us to share that light with others? This isn't about retracting behind walls and locking the door. Far be it from that. So back to that question. In what way are you experiencing pressure to conform to the pattern of the world? In what ways do you just need to stand firm? What would it look like to stand firm? Because sometimes the hardest thing to do is just to stay where you are. It's even harder than getting abs, which I found is actually quite hard. We're only nine days in. I've been on a steady diet of cheesecake, but I like have, I do have like 355 days left, so there's time. And as much as I'd love to get to the end of the year and actually see like little muscles maybe popping through where they hadn't before, as much as, yeah, like maybe I'd like that even more, I'd like to look back at the end of this year and, and, and be able to say, I was not expedient. I was obedient. The only standard that mattered to me was God's standard. That's my prayer for myself, and that's my prayer for us as a church. That's my prayer for you. May we stand firm. May we resolve this year to be unchanged, unmoved in the ways we are to stand firm. May we resolve to be obedient 
to God, not expedient. I want to invite you into a time of, of prayer here, just between you and God, as the team comes up here uh, to lead us in one final song. Why don't you just take a moment right there where you are and reflect on that question. In what way are you experiencing pressure to conform to the pattern of the world? Think on that. And maybe something is already in your mind. And maybe you just want to say, God, would you, would you empower me to stand firm in this? To be unmoved? God, this year, would you just enable me to be faithful? Father God, we thank you that you are a faithful God. That your love for us is sure. That we always have your grace in our time of need. That even while we are sinners, you have loved us. And that you love the whole world. And because you love the world, you have sent your son into the world to pay the cost of our sin, to make a way for us to know you, to be in right relationship with you, to have the life that we were created to have and to have life eternal, which is a gift from you to all who believe in your son, not the perfect people, but the people who trust in you. Or just enable us, each and every one of us, as individuals, as families, and as a church, as we move forward into this year. We don't know what we're going to face, Lord, tomorrow or next month. Lord, you alone know what the future holds, but we believe that you are working all things for our good. And Lord, we just resolve that it is our desire that we would just stand firm in obedience to you. Would you just enable us by your spirit, Lord, just to to stand where we need to stand, where there is pressure to move, but we ought not to move, Lord. Will you just give us the ability to stand there, to love you well, to love those around us well. Lord, we just enable us to live this year so that we can hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. God, we just long to be faithful. Would you just enable us to be unmoved, to be obedient to you because we love you, because you are worthy and because it's for our good and the good of this world. All this we pray in the wonderful, powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And together we say, amen.